My name is Liam Patuzzi. I'm a policy analyst at NPI Europe. Maybe some of you have already seen me uh, yesterday um, at, the, at the opening session. Um, as I mentioned, during the session, simultaneous interpretation in French is available. Uh, to select the language you wish to listen in, you should be able to click on the interpretation icon, which uh, looks like a globe in the toolbar at the bottom of the meeting screen. And there you can select the language in which you want to follow this session in. But uh, for the moment, uh, we're running a bit late with the French simultaneous interpretation, so bear with us and we're trying to solve it. If you have any technical problems, uh, I'll just do all the housekeeping notes now right from the start. Uh, you can send a direct message in Zoom chat or through the Whova app to Lucia Salgado from MPI Europe or email lsalgado at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, we will have a Q&A uh, at the end of the session. Uh, and if you're following us in Whova, please type your question in the Q&A box for the session. Uh, if you joined uh, via Zoom, you can also post the questions in the, in the chat box. Um, and uh, yeah, again, just a reminder that we will be recording the event. So please just keep in mind that your question and the chat may also be recorded and uh, are also viewable by the other participants. So I'll just start with some very brief framing before we delve into the conversation for this session. Um, one key question that was already brought up yesterday um, when, uh, when we discussed uh, the goals of the conference and when we announced them was about expanding the reach of innovation beyond um, metropolitan and cosmopolitan hubs to which we often automatically uh, connect it. So there isn't just one way, of course, to, to do, to, to go about social innovation and all communities are capable of it uh, since Essentially, in a nutshell, it's, it's about mobilizing their untapped resources. Um, in small and rural communities, uh, social innovation is often much closer than it seems. Uh, it may, for instance, find fertile ground in, in diverse partnerships between local players, uh, rather than maybe what, what we're used to, to thinking about the introduction of sophisticated tech tools or, or specific event formats. In recent years, um, small and rural communities uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, and, and with this, I think we encompass both rural areas, but also smaller cities, mid-sized cities, have played an increasingly important role in, in receiving and welcoming migrants and refugees. Um, this goes from resettlement, but also skilled immigration. I, I can also hear the French translation. I'm not sure. Excuse me, just one second. I'll just make sure that I'm on the right channel. Sorry, are you English channel? Okay, okay. I think now we should be fine. Can you unmute? Okay, now we should be all right. Apologies. Um, but it sounded good. It sounded like we are on the right track to solving this. So, uh, I was saying in Europe, for instance, this has visible this, this increased role of, of smaller and rural communities after the 2015 and 16 spontaneous arrivals of, of many asylum seekers. 
which also prompted uh, dispersal policies and also the expansion of, of settlement initiatives and programs in the rural areas. And this has also then sparked the interest of research policy and practice in the experience of these small and rural communities. Much has been said about uh, the potential benefits that could derive from the growing engagement of small towns in, in inclusion, for example, um, stronger social connection, more tailored support for newcomers because of uh, the tightly knit social fabric of these communities. Also the promise of economic revitalization for areas that are sometimes depopulating or, or poorly uh, poorly uh, covered with certain services. Um, for instance, in research that we did last year uh, at NTI Europe, and you can find a publication in the uh, share article section of, of the platform, uh, we found that in, in villages, in some villages, uh, uh, refugee arrivals were credited with preventing school closures and, and closures of pharmacies, uh, as well as other local businesses, or even helped meet certain labor demands in, in agriculture, nursing and other sectors. At the same time, uh, these discussions often highlight recurrent challenges faced by smaller communities and rural areas. And uh, these range from yeah, infrastructure gaps, service gaps, to also limited experience with uh, supporting needs of diverse populations. Now, I'm aware that this is not a wholly new conversation, and many of you probably already heard several times about these challenges and opportunities. At the same time, I'm also aware that providing such condensed overview may also fall into the usual trap of painting um, you know, small and rural communities as the homogeneous reality, which of course they are not. Uh, but this really is the right time to get back to these questions, I think. On, on one hand, because um, this field has seen considerable progress, and we will hear about some concrete initiatives in a moment from from our lovely speakers, but also because uh, COVID-19 has exacerbated some of the challenges at rural areas face, digital connectivity gaps, uh, specialized services that are out of reach, uh, healthcare uh, is just one of them. Uh, I recently read an article um, mentioning how in the United States, the pandemic has taken a, a heavy toll on rural communities, and especially in highly diverse rural communities. What are these? These are the ones in which at least one third of the population are people of color. And these communities have experienced 1.6 times more uh, COVID-19 uh, fatalities per capita than other rural areas. So there are some underlying factors there that, of course, account also for, for these vulnerabilities. At the same time, and I'm going to close with this, in the long run and with the right strategies, it is also thinkable that smaller communities could benefit from some of the shifts that the pandemic has accelerated. For example, the spread of remote working or the search for greater quality of life among uh, urban dwellers, as well as uh, greater attention for and investments in uh, mobility, questions around mobility. And it is also not a coincidence that over the past year, we've heard more and more calls for comprehensive strategies around uh, yeah, rural development and revitalization. So with our great lineup of speakers today, um, we'll try to address these and other questions. Um, 
what does social innovation for inclusion look like in small communities? What new bottlenecks has COVID-19 generated in these communities with regard to inclusion? Most importantly, how can we make the most of the contribution of small and rural communities to make systems of, of welcoming, of inclusion, more sustainable for, for all. Um, so I'd like to uh, welcome the speakers uh, that we have today joining this panel. Uh, we have uh, Daniel, Daniel Glunz, hello, uh, head of the research and transfer office at the University of Hildesheim and partner of the project Land zu Hause Zukunft, uh, supported by the Robert Bosch Foundation, which aims at supporting innovative and viable approaches to the integration and participation of newcomers in rural regions. Hi, Daniel. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for so much for joining us. Uh, we have David Campbell. Hello, David. He's the president of Jupia Consultants in New Brunswick, Canada. Hi, David. Hi there. Bonjour, David. Then we have Andrea Solerislava, a senior rural integration project manager at the International Catholic Migration Commission Europe, ICMC, and the Share Network. Hello, Andrea. Good to have Hi. you here. Hi, Liam. Thank you for inviting Hi. me. And finally, we have uh, two uh, ambassadors from the Nous project SIRA uh, of the Share Network. Khmlin uh, Haj Mohammed. Bonjour, Khmlin. And also Maher Dahdal. And I hope Et I'm Maher pronouncing Dagdal. it correctly, but a very warm welcome to both of Bienvenue. you. Uh, so since we're a little bit late, I'll start without further ado after this brief introduction. And uh, I remind you as the speakers uh, contribute and uh, share their insights with us, feel free to share your questions either in the chat or in the Q&A function. I will be happy to uh, include them in the following discussion. So Daniel, um, I'll turn to you and, and start with a question to you. Uh, the Lanzo House Zukunft project that I already mentioned supports uh, innovative and viable approaches to inclusion of newcomers in rural regions, as, as, I, uh, as I mentioned. How do you understand innovation within this program? And, and what did you learn from this program on how to best support smaller communities in, in achieving this, this innovation? Um, that would be really interesting to hear. And, and yeah, if you have any examples to share, we'd be very curious to learn more. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Maybe I'll just give a brief introduction into our program. Sure. Um, it's a co cooperation with the Robert Bosch Foundation, um, as you mentioned, and we are currently supporting 10 rural counties in particular. Um, I'll go into a bit more detail um, in a minute. Um, and those 10 counties have applied to us in an application procedure where they stated their a particular challenge that they wanted to address in the program and an idea for a solution. So um, now um, we have two consulting partners um, who support these 10 counties that we selected in developing these ideas further and implementing them. Um, thus, we are not like introducing our own ideas from the program into the counties, but more, more or less helping um, the counties to develop their own ideas further and um, building on local expertise that is already there. But we also think that learning from one another is a very 
helpful um, idea for counties because um, not every county will have made the same experiences, will have the same expertise, but they might all be facing some very similar challenges. And the, thus the second, we call it pillar of our program is networking, um, which means that we are building um, a body that will also outlast the program duration. Um, it shall be a sustainable body where um, the rural regions can engage in peer-to-peer -peer exchange and learning. Um, and we're also giving some workshops where we are going into details of um, particular topics that arise in the rural counties that we are uh, working with. And the third one is communication, um, because a lot of the regulations that local authorities or local actors have to deal with are not made at the local level, but at higher levels of governance. And um, as such, the experiences of local um, areas and also particular rural actors that might not have a voice as much as large cities do, um, we think should be like introduced into the political processes. And we want to empower rural areas and actors to raise their voices and make them heard. Um, and we generally have a very strong orientation in all of these three pillars towards the needs of the rural counties that we are working with, um, which means that um, we have conducted a needs assessment. We are continuously evaluating what we are doing to ensure that um, what we are doing, what we are providing in terms of facilitation does really match the local needs. And um, you've asked for the what is innovative um, or how do we understand innovation? And we would say that innovation does not necessarily mean that an idea has never been uh, mentioned or um, implemented anywhere before, because um, we would say that if it's innovative for a particular context, um, that is something that changes um, local habits or um, local approaches. And um, that is working our um, definition of innovation because very rarely is one approach that has been conducted in a, in a different area taken one-to-one -one and implemented in another area in much the same fashion, but usually they are adapted, which means that local actors are um, very flexible in, in building on ideas that they have heard from elsewhere and adapting them to the local situation because rural um, areas are not um, the same everywhere. You've mentioned that in your introductory statement that they are very heterogeneous that, um, for example, if we're talking about uh, migration and integration, we have different groups of migrants present. Uh, we have different history of migration in different um, locations. We have different economic structures, social structures, geographic location, and so on. Um, and you have said that social innovation is often, very often expected to be located in large cities, but we have to say that we find a lot of um, ideas and approaches in local areas. For example, you have uh, talked about the difficulties of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, we have been observing that in the counties that we are working with as well, that methods that you have used before, for example, an open uh, structure where people can go to and ask their questions that didn't work um, because everything was shut down. And so we have seen that there were some very creative solutions in the counties that we've been working with. For example, they were using WhatsApp groups and suddenly they found that they had access to people. They had very much difficulty in accessing before, in reaching before and providing their um, their ideas and services to them. And suddenly they, they had found a, a new idea of gaining access to these persons. And um, in those ways, we have seen different 
approaches and we would like to enable the rural counties in spreading their ideas and experience and making others benefit from this experience because um, also for example in terms of uh, language courses some um, rural areas have found ways of providing language courses in COVID-19 that might be a sustainable solution for rural counties that had have difficulties with mobility aspects, as you mentioned. Um, so using some online offers and combining them with some face-to-face -face encounters that might be a way to tackle these issues of mobility, for example. And um, that's maybe concluding this short introductory statement. Now, um, in our view or from our experience, innovation can best be generated if actors of different sectors come together at the local level and if actors from the local level um, engage in exchange among borders, um, because that is one thing that is lacking in Germany currently. You very often have contact to the county which is neighboring you, but not across Germany from the north to the south or east to west. And that's what we would like to facilitate but still, of course, that's very much work in progress, and we will have some communication formats where we will um, publish some more of our experiences, for example, in a large conference in Berlin in next April. But um, taken together, we would see our efforts as acting as a catalyst for all those ideas that already arise in rural areas, trying to make them flourish and be developed further, and then ultimately spreading this knowledge to assist other rural regions. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Danielle. This was really interesting. And also, thank you for referring to certain examples. I'm sure that uh, will be interesting to, to, hear, uh, to hear even more later on. But uh, I think you made a great point about uh, there are so many, there is so much, um, yeah, so much exciting innovation and, and so much uh, dynamic going on in, in many communities. And indeed, then there seems to be a need for, uh, for catalysts that can also perhaps encourage this exchange um, reaching beyond, let's say, the neighboring community and um, and sort of like creating that network and the transfer and, and maybe scaling of certain approaches. So um, perhaps we can later come back to this, how to how to best do this, how to build a, the support infrastructure that uh, uh, can mediate basically and can act as an intermediary uh, in this process. But I'd like now to turn to a bit of a different perspective. Uh, hi, David, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at you. Um, David, uh, it's great to have you here because you, you really bring this extensive experience in, in economic development of different uh, regions and communities, particularly in Canada, including rural areas, which of course uh, play an important role in the, in the geographical and social fabric of, of the country. Um, there's this growing discourse that I referred to at the beginning about how um, welcoming uh, or welcome can result in welfare in a way like um, inclusion in uh, smaller communities and towns can lead to revitalization. Um, I was curious to hear from, from your experience and the work you have done with many communities in Canada, what are the, the key conditions for this to happen? So, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and I hope you can hear me all right. I have spent now almost 30 years working with communities large and small in Canada on economic development. So how do you foster a strong economy? And in the last decade, even in the last five years, this, the growing shortages of workers and the demographic changes, particularly in rural areas, uh, has really meant that that um, demographic trend is really a barrier 
to economic development. So we have to be able to solve that problem. So in terms of the conditions, I think the very first condition is we need to make the case for immigration to the public, uh, particularly in rural areas. In the case of refugees, there's a moral um, uh, aspect to it, right? We need to do our part globally to support refugees, but economic migrants, uh, really we have to make the case that they are needed in our communities, large and small. And that's somewhat problematic in Atlantic Canada, particularly because we've had a long history of high unemployment, a lot of seasonal industries. And so the, the, there's still this residual view among a lot in the population that we don't have enough jobs for the population already here we're losing our young people, they're moving to the cities, so why do we need immigration? So we need to start by making a really good case for immigration, bringing mayors and local community leaders on side uh, and supporting them as they make the case and make the argument for immigration to their community, uh, their local community. And I think that work has been uh, happening. Of course, Canada, historically, going back 70 or 80 years, most immigration was into the largest uh, uh, urban centers. There wasn't a lot of immigration into rural areas. So that's just starting to happen really in the last five, six, seven years, particularly here uh, in Atlantic Canada. But we need to really make that case with the population. What do you want your community to be in 10 years, in 20 years? The reality is given the demographic trends, the long-term survivability of many of these communities is at risk without the ability to, to attract migrants. And the second point I would make here is we need to talk about in terms of sort of permanent immigration, we need to talk about bringing people in. Uh, okay, so yeah, so the second condition is that we need to talk in terms of demographic renewal, a lot of immigration in across North America and, and in Europe, the focus is just on solving a short term workforce gap, right? You need workers in the fishing industry or the agriculture industry. So you're going to bring in workers on a short term basis. In Canada, we're trying to attract people for the long term. And that's the that's the value proposition for immigrants. We don't want you to come here just for a few years to fill a job. We want you to become permanent residents, Canadian citizens, and ultimately uh, uh, raise families and have your career here, retire here, uh, and, and live out the rest of your life in Canada. So that's a very important thing. We also need to align our immigrant attraction efforts to economic opportunities available in rural areas. This is the biggest challenge. If you bring in newcomers and they can't find a job that's matched to their skills and their interests, uh, that's the biggest reason why they leave our rural communities. So when we're out attracting newcomers, we, we need to attract newcomers with the skills and interests uh, for the jobs and the entrepreneurial opportunities that are available in the community. Uh, another thing is we have to have appropriate settlement services. So uh, this has been a, a common theme is how do you support newcomers in small areas? We can take advantage of what's happening in the larger urban centers and build on that, but ultimately we have to have these services uh, in the rural areas. We need to encourage integration with social networks in the communities. Uh, churches have become a, a major uh, settlement support. Uh, a, a lot of immigrants coming to Canada, probably about half, uh, are of some religious persuasion. And so churches have become very important <clears throat> in terms of supporting them as they settle in the community. We also need to get them involved in volunteer organizations and engaging with the public at large. And then finally here, I would say we need appropriate housing. So one of the challenges in Canada is that these smaller rural communities really haven't been growing 
for a number of years. So there hasn't been a lot of new housing construction. There's not a lot of infrastructure. There's not a, a large construction industry. And so now as we start to see immigrants flowing into these rural areas, there's not enough housing. So housing prices have gone up. There's not enough appropriate housing. There's not enough rental housing. Uh, so we really need to be working on that. And that is a real focus right now uh, in Canada to, to make sure there's enough housing, particularly in rural areas. Thanks so much, uh, David. Apologies for the slip that you were muted. I'm, I'm sure it was not meant as censorship. Thanks a lot for, for these contributions and uh, yeah, for highlighting all these different aspects, the importance of um, um, the, um, strengthening social networks also by involving the organizations, uh, the importance of having sort of like tailored matching to economic opportunities available to enable that sort of like long-term inclusion that uh, communities are looking for. Uh, maybe just a, a direct follow-up question to this, and it's one of the discussion questions that we had in mind also for this session. Like if you look at the uh, broader trends that, um, you know, uh, are affecting uh, rural communities in Canada and elsewhere, do you see um, how do you see them interacting with this uh, with this need or yeah this needed or the inclusion ecosystem in rural communities? I'm thinking about developments in infrastructure in the economic structure. You mentioned already the housing aspect. Um, just yeah, any thoughts that you might have to share on that on on how um, yeah sort of like inclusion can also interact with other local development priorities and trends. Yeah, so I would just say one of the big challenges is funding. So in Canada, that local or municipal government has the least capacity to raise new taxes and support uh, new funding priorities, such as uh, people attraction and, and integration. So really, we need provincial and federal governments to provide more funding to support these smaller communities uh, and local governments uh, as they look to uh, have the appropriate infrastructure, whether it's whether it's uh, settlement services, but also when we look at the education system, we look at the healthcare system, there's a wide variety of things we have to focus on in order to make sure that newcomers can, can properly settle in the community uh, and, and build their lives and build their careers in rural areas. So I think that would be the, the first one. And then the second one is we need to foster far more engagement between uh, the newcomer population and the long time or the older population in our rural communities. In urban centers, you tend to have a, a larger cluster of ethnocultural groups. And so those, those tend to be supportive of newcomers, but you don't have as much of that in rural areas. So we do need to be far more focused on uh, ensuring that uh, that uh, newcomers can build these social networks, that they can have uh, support, that they can, you know, even even things like job training uh, and um, uh, um, uh, experiential learning and things like that to make sure that newcomers are attaching to businesses locally, that they're attaching to social groups locally, um, you know, and, and this is always a challenge, right, that, that sometimes you, you don't uh, have the proper connection between the sort of older population that's been uh, in the community for many, many decades and the newcomer population. They tend to cluster uh, with each other, uh, and that's not a good thing for long-term uh, uh, retention and long-term integration and ultimately the best outcome for the population overall. So we need to do more of that, and hopefully in smaller communities it's actually easier 
in some respects, because you know, you, you, it's harder when you have thousands of newcomers flowing into a larger community, but when you have 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 into a smaller community, you can be more supportive, more targeted in your efforts to uh, support newcomers in the community. Thanks a lot for that reply, David. Yeah, the, the, especially the point on social contact and enabling these interactions, I think it's a, it's a crucial one. Also in the research we've conducted, that, that emerged as a, as a key success factor and yet um, one that is often quite, quite volatile and fluctuating depending on funding that is available and levels of engagement. So indeed one to underpin with uh, also the point on, on funding and resources on a regular basis that you, that you mentioned. So in terms of concrete examples, I also wanted to flag that we've had some links, interesting links shared in the, in the chat in case you're interested in looking those up. We had uh, Christina from Welcoming America who also shared some resources from the work they do. And I'm sure you can also find very interesting concrete initiatives on, on how to do this, on how to carry out many of the points and the um, sorry, goals that we've uh, mentioned so far. Um, but now I'd like to turn to Andrea. Andrea Soler, hi. Um, Andrea, uh, you're a rural integration expert at ICMC Europe, as I mentioned, and, and with the SHARE Network, which uh, of course is, is very active in this area of supporting smaller communities in welcoming uh, refugees and, and migrants. Uh, and indeed, as I, as I mentioned in my introduction, we often talk about rural communities as if they were one and the same reality. And, I wanted to ask you, because I know you, you work currently in a project with uh, very different communities across different areas of Europe. Could you help us differentiate just a little bit more by providing perhaps some short examples of uh, yeah, what different challenges you have come across in, in, in different rural regions and perhaps also um, how did they respond to these challenges? Yes, uh, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here and to be given this opportunity to speak. Um, so yes, as you mentioned, we are currently working on a project, uh, it's called Share Sierra, and uh, we are fostering inclusive territorial approaches uh, to expand um, the, the strategies for welcoming and integrating newcomers in 10 uh, rural regions in Europe. So we have uh, four in France, three in Spain, two in Poland, one in Greece. And um, as you said, um, the, the first conclusion uh, to, to point out uh, is that rural areas are not at all identical. And uh, even though we work on similar um, regions according to standard uh, hierarchical systems, such as the NOTCH system, which is um, a system that classifies European regions into three main categories, um, there's not one which is a bigger uh, region and then you have NOTS 3 which are smaller and these NOTS 3 regions are further classified as predominantly rural, intermediate or predominantly urban. Even though we selected regions that were either pre predominantly rural or intermediate, we see on the ground that the realities and the challenges, of course, they face are very different. Um, so, for example, in terms of density, which is one of the criteria to classify these regions, according to the NOT system, if you look at density, we have some regions that have a relatively high density, such as the Polish regions, but then you need to put this into context because, for example, Masovia, which is one of our regions, uh, hosts the capital city, Warsaw. So, of course, this uh, plays an, a huge uh, influence. And then if you look at the Spanish regions, such as Guadalajara, Teruel, Soria, these are 
the, the least populated Spanish provinces, and they have a population density among the lowest in the whole European Union. Um, we are talking about uh, an average of eight inhabitants per kilometer square, and uh, they've lost more than 40% of their population in the last 50 years. And um, and as uh, actually David was saying, uh, these regions have been really active in the last years uh, in making the case uh, about migration and how it is needed and actually creating a, a grassroots movement, uh, for example, in Teruel, Teruel existed, Teruel exists, uh, which has actually gained um, representation in the Spanish parliament. And they make the case to, to have more investment in infrastructure in these rural areas. And also they have been launching plans to attract new settlers. So they are very active in, in the field and um, they really are trying to change the discourse around um, migration uh, to frame it as migration as, as a factor of rural revitalization. And um, but then, of course, if you look also the, as as Daniel was saying, as the population that arrives to these regions, it's very different. If you compare the Polish regions, which are not that much exposed to um, to a refugee population, if we compare it to the Greek region, Karditsa, since the 2015, that is hosting a significant um, number of, of refugees and also attracts uh, seasonal workers from from different countries outside the European Union. Um, these populations, even though it's, it is the same goal to integrate these populations, they face, uh, of course, different challenges and have different needs. Um, and I think that, as 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 David was saying, we we need um, more investment and more funding um, channeled to these to these local areas because they are the ones that are actually um, they are actually launching very innovative practices as as we could, as we could see during the COVID nineteen um, in Correa, for example, in one of our regions, um, there were some mobile language courses units that developed and during the COVID. Um, all these services uh, move towards uh, the online platforms um, through WhatsApp courses. Um, also, mobility is a huge issue. I, it was not mentioned before, but mobility is one of the greatest um, challenges in these in all ten regions. And um, there are some innovative practices that we are we are seeing. For example, there's a platform in Saône-et-Loire where um, volunteers can offer you a ride if you need to go to your job or if you need to go to a medical appointment and you you don't have enough um, money to pay for public transport or there is no public transportation options and you don't have a car then some volunteers can can offer you this ride um so i i think it's it's important to not uh frame rural regions as an identical monolithic reality. It is very um, nuanced. And um, we also have to say that in most of our regions, and this is my last point, although we can see many innovations in rural areas, in most of the, um, the initiatives take place uh, in the cities in these rural regions. So uh, it is also important to to support local and very rural municipalities. Thanks a lot, Andrea. And for sure, we will be uh, interested in, in learning more also about the CIRA project and in general about the activities from the SHARE network. I see that uh, uh, your colleague just shared a link also because there were some questions about learning more about the activities of the SHARE network. So uh, to all participants, if you're interested, um, have a look in the chat. Um, I thought, yeah, it was really 
<clears throat> interesting the, the point that you made about the difference to different communities and um, you know from from what kind of background and context they might come to this issue and uh, I remember in the research we did it was like what one thing that became quite clear is that talking about the impact of immigration or um, you know um, refugee arrivals on small and rural communities is a little bit misleading because it's oftentimes not um, something that in a way affects the rural community passively as though it was like a, a passive uh, instance and all but it's very much a, a choice about how to um, how to use that perhaps to leverage it also to mobilize other resources within the community I don't know opening um, or like uh, starting um, community enterprises social enterprises uh, revitalizing certain trades etc um, so actually this is a, a question that uh, um, maybe stopping for a moment and reflecting on what we've discussed so far I would like to ask to to all of you namely uh, we've mentioned a few times David you mentioned it but also Andrea you picked up on this again the discourse the discourse of how to you know leaders in the community can uh, present uh, immigration or uh, reception of, of refugees and, and inclusion as uh, beneficial for the community and in that sense also frame it as linked to benefits for for the community but um how to how to do that in a way that also i don't know concerns or hesitations within the community are taken into account and there is this sort of like uh, mediation that uh, in a way um, provides a fertile ground for these encounters that we also mentioned can create true cohesion and inclusion So I see that um, Andrea and, and Danielle would like to react to this. Please go ahead, uh, Andrea, you start and then you move on to Danielle. Yes, um, ju just to add to this, I think that what's really important is to um, foster multi-stakeholder platforms. I think it is a way to have everyone sitting around the table and, and express their concerns and their fears um, and also their, their challenges. And this is something that we've tried to implement the, in our share Syria project to actually not only build a bridge between the host community and, and the migrant and refugee community, but also we tend to see sometimes in, in these rural areas that that used to have migration and now are receiving also a refugee population that the actors that work in the field of resettlement and welcome of the refugee population do not always um, interact or coordinate with th those that work traditionally in the migration field. So it's, I think it's also important that these two different types of actors speak and that um, and that the local municipality can also engage not only with volunteers and civil society organizations, but also with the private sector, with service providers and um, and also regional uh, authorities, because one of the things that is missing is uh, coordination between the different levels of governance within, within the same country. Thanks a lot, Andrea. I see that David also raised his hand. Uh, you're free to jump in, David. So I, I think there's a very strong economic case, and that does resonate with the public. I mean, it's not all about economics, even though I'm an economist, uh, but I think it does matter. Like we're seeing a lot of industries closing or downsizing, but even local services, it's getting harder to find uh, personal support workers, people to actually help older people uh, as they age and stay in their homes. So there's a lot of services that people actually want in their community, in their small community, 
it's getting harder and harder to find workers. So I think what the, the economic case needs to be made to the public that we need newcomers to come and help uh, address workforce demand, but also, as I said before, the longer term supporting our, 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 our communities more broadly and you know, putting their children in our school systems and so on. And so I think that economic case is one that needs to be made. It's not the only thing. We do have to talk about a variety of other issues when it comes to migration. Uh, but I think one of the things we can focus on is a very strong economic case, even around taxes. If we don't have the tax base to support the public services that people want, um, you know, it's going to hurt them and it's going to hurt their quality of life. So we're looking out 10 years, 20 years and saying, what kind of community do you want? And realizing that attracting newcomers to those communities in most cases will be very helpful uh, uh, to their quality of life of the newcomer, but also of the people that live in the community. Thanks a lot, David, for yeah for stressing again the economic case and the long-sightedness of, of uh, the strategic thinking that is necessary there. Danielle, sorry, I, I skipped you earlier because you unraised your hand, but uh, uh, please go ahead. Sure. Um, yeah, first of all, I would like to agree uh, with Andrea and David, but um, I would also like to stress that it's from our research, it's, uh, it shows that it's very difficult to influence local discourses. So it's very, um, it's not as easy as saying, okay, we need this or that discourse, and then we uh, implement it. Um, it's more like um, Andrea said that you have to involve a lot of stakeholders, and you have to really implant um, a frame in in uh, local um, you know, local culture and history and politics. Um, and from well, another research project that has been done at our uh, research group, um, we have seen that that works best if you really connect to um, stories and histories of the local place um, that have been there before. For example, you can underline um, if migration has been, as it very often has, um, a, a part of local history, even though it's it may not be as visible as it often is in larger cities, but many rural counties have had decades of migration. It's just that it's not very visible in, in local uh, storytelling. And then um, maybe one thing I would like to warn against also is to um, open up a discourse that tries to frame immigrants as um, needed or as positive for local um, for local development only, um, but to rather stress that migrants should become a, an, a regular part of local communities and that people should be viewed in their very own individual setting regarding the needs they have, regarding the resources they bring into a local community and um, regarding everyone in the local community, um, regardless of migration background or not, um, in this individual view also to, um, well, to, to make sure that you don't have this we and them logic that gets implanted into local discourse, which, which can be very, very difficult um, to catch up with. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, some of the, you know the the cases that we came across. Any this empathy element and trying to connect uh, the narrative to the the very experience of the community in terms of its history. Many communities have had indeed also its history, potentially also of emigration, so of leaving to to seek uh, 
better prospect, but better opportunities uh, elsewhere. And, and therefore, it was very interesting to hear how that could use could be used to to create to foster this this empathy. And uh, um, I see that Andrea also raised her hand. Do you have some quick comments on this, Andrea? Yes, but really quick because I don't want to take more time, and I want sure. to, I want Maher and Hamlin to be able to intervene. Of course, yeah. But um, yeah, no, I just wanted to say that also the rural areas I think that have one advantage. One first is that the proximity that enables greater interaction and also enables a, a greater role of of community leaders. But as Daniel was saying, it's something that you cannot force, you cannot create. It's something that maybe it's there or it's not. But um, I think that there's also an opportunity here with this new rural revitalization discourse and also this, this, um, this it's a new priority also at the EU level. And uh, in rural areas, there are already many networks working on, on economic development and agricultural development. And I think that these rural partnerships that we want to see working in the field of integration should uh, link to these uh, rural development networks that already exist, um, for example, promoted through the leather approach and etc. Um, because there's also again, and there's a win win um, situation, there's already sort of an informal structure, and uh, they, they could capitalize on that. Indeed, yeah, thanks a lot also for pointing to existing networks and how uh, yeah, rather than duplicating structures, these questions or these networks could be used to uh, to exchange and transfer knowledge also around these topics, given that they are so ingrained and linked with other questions of local development. Um, so I, I didn't, um, I, I was uh, trying to uh, win a little bit of time by a little bit of time because I was hoping that we could sort out some issues, technical issues on the interpretation front, which I hope are now sorted, but I'm not 100% sure, so bear with me. We will try, nevertheless. We are very uh, lucky to have uh, two uh, um, representatives, ambassadors from the Share Sierra project with us today from two. Uh, French uh, communities, uh, two small communities in France. So um, uh, I'd like to turn to Khmlin, Khmlin Hajmo Hamad. Uh, hello, hi. Uh, I hope you can hear me. I hope you can hear me in translation. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, I know that you were resettled uh, to France with your family about three years ago. Um, I wanted to hear from your experience, what made it easier for you and your family to, uh, to integrate and to feel part of uh, the rural community where you settled. Je me présente pas. Donc euh, bonjour. Euh, en fait, je sais pas. Peut-être je vais me présenter. Donc je m'appelle Ramin Haj Mohamed et j'ai 18 ans. Donc ça fait trois ans que je suis en France. Donc euh, en fait, euh, pour moi et ma famille, euh, ce que c'était facile pour nous, c'est les bénévoles qui nous ont beaucoup aidés parce que de venir dans un village euh, où en gros, de venir dans un pays où tu ne parlais pas la langue, c'est trop dur, c'est difficile. Mais grâce aux bénévoles et, dans un, et un ancien élu euh, qui travaille à la mairie, il nous a beaucoup aidé pour les démarches administratives et de faire des cours la langue française. Et bah, en fait, c'était ça. Et ils nous ont beaucoup soutenus pour euh, bah, d'avoir s'exprimer et s'engager euh, pour euh, ne pas être peur. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think I think we we could hear it. The translation worked. Thank you, Hamlin, for for sharing this, and uh, really interesting to hear how uh, the engagement from the community helped support this. Um, I'd be interested in in hearing and, and 
to, to what extent uh, these people who, who supported you were, were they uh, specific associations? You know, was this already organized in advance? Um, or, or were these just, you know, neighbors, informal interactions that happened uh, more or less casually as you, uh, as you found your way in the community? Were, were these casual encounters or were there specific settings um, and occasions that the community had organized for you to, you know, uh, have more and more opportunities to meet different parts and different members of the community? Alors, pour nous, en fait, c'était des citoyens. Donc, euh, je crois que c'était la commune Ayan. Avant qu'on devienne Ayan, ils étaient déjà prévenus qu'il y aura une famille syrienne. Donc, euh, vraiment, c'était des citoyens qui nous ont aidés pour progresser en langue française. C'est vraiment really intéressant comment, you know, la possibilité de leverage l'expérience et, en quelque sorte, aussi l'empathie et the insider knowledge of those who have already gone through the process and how they can often work as a, as a bit of a glue and, and, a, and an intermediary uh, between the, the community and newcomers. So how important it is also to have those skills and to uh, include them perhaps in ecosystems of, uh, of, uh, of refugee and migrant inclusion at the local level in smaller communities in particular where specialized services might be might be thinner or, or harder to to fund and to sustain um i also have a, a a second question for you hamlin namely to learn a bit more about your role uh, in the sira project uh, um why did you decide to become a share ambassador and and what what is your role as a share ambassador could you tell us a little more about that Oui, ben, en fait, j'avais trop envie. En fait, comme Andrea m'a parlé de ça, j'étais très contente parce que j'avais toujours voulu partager mon histoire et mon vécu qui a été très dur pour moi. Parce qu'en fait, je trouve que c'est très dur de quitter notre propre pays et de devenir dans un pays étranger. Mais et pour, pour faire montrer aussi aux autres réfugiés que ce n'est pas parce que vous avez vécu une vie très difficile que vous ne pouvez pas réussir Thanks so much, Hamlin. Thank you for, for participating and, and sharing uh, your perspective and your experience. And yeah, um, well, congratulations on your role as a, as a share ambassador. And uh, yeah, I think we wish you success with that also. Uh, it's it's great that you, that you put your experience at the service of, uh, you know, further helping uh, the process of uh, arriving and, and, and feeling welcome in, in the local community. Uh, Maher, um, I would like to turn to you. Thank you so much for, for joining the round as well. Uh, and greetings. Um, also, could you, could you briefly mention what your community is? Uh, it's something that I haven't asked Hamlin either. So if you could both maybe briefly mention what, uh, what, your, what the community is, where you're based. Uh, and the uh, same question to you, Maher. Um, would be great to hear about your experience and, and what made it easier for you and uh, to, to, you know, to find your feet in the, in the community where you arrived, which is a different region of France. Uh, Alors, uh, moi, please go ahead. Feel free moi, to go ahead. Je commence par me présenter. Donc, je m'appelle Maher. J'ai 22 ans. Euh, je suis d'origine syrienne. Je suis en France depuis euh, 2016. Alors, euh, 
Moi, de mon côté, c'est un peu la même histoire euh, que Kremlin. À mon arrivée ici, euh, c'était prévu qu'il y ait une famille syrienne euh, qui, vont, euh, qui vont être réinstallées dans cette ville. Donc, euh, on a été bien accueillis. Administrativement, on a été suivis par une, euh, par une association. Euh, par contre, dans la vie quotidienne, c'était pas du tout la même chose. C'est-à-dire, euh, dans la vie quotidienne, il euh, faut, vraiment, faut vraiment improviser. Si tu, tu connais, on ne connaît pas grand-chose. On est dans une, une petite ville. On ne connaît pas vraiment. Euh, on ne sait pas ce qu'on doit faire, où y aller, euh, où, acheter, où faire nos courses, par exemple. Et euh, à ce moment-là, il bah, fallait euh, improviser. Euh, par contre, euh, c'est le même cas aussi que Ramin, on avait des gens, euh, que ce soit les voisins ou même des gens qui ne connaissent pas, qu'ils ont entendu qu'il y a une famille euh, voilà, dans le besoin, qu'ils qu ont besoin de, de l'aide, enfin, ils, euh, ils sont venus nous aider. Et euh, enfin, le, le plus compliqué euh, je, enfin, pour nous, enfin, ce que je disais tout le temps, c'était vraiment la langue française. La langue française, c'est une langue assez compliquée, donc il fallait vraiment que, que je prends sur moi, que je travaille plus, plus que les autres pour au moins essayer d'intégrer un minimum. Et c'est de là où tout a commencé. Thank you, Maher. Can I ask you a, a further question? Um, if you were to meet uh you know newly arrived uh, refugees or immigrants in the community where you are based now in france um what what would you what would you tell them in terms of uh you know to look forward to uh, or some advice that you would give them or what would you tell them about the opportunities that they will have uh in the community bah, moi perso j'invite cette Enfin, J'invite tous les réfugiés qui, qui sont réinstallés en France, qui viennent d'arriver en France, d'y de, de aller, aller tout le temps vers les autres et ne pas attendre que les autres viennent vers, vers nous. Enfin, même si on, des fois on n'arrive pas à communiquer, à leur parler, d'y aller tout le temps vers les autres et de leur montrer qu'on n'est qu pas méchant, qu'on euh, qu ne va pas, on pas vous tuer, on n'est pas méchant, qu'on est des, des gens comme vous, des personnes comme vous et euh, créer un lien avec ces gens-là, même si euh, voilà, on ne parle pas la même langue. Parce que forcément, les gens, ils ont, euh, on a tous peur de, de, des choses qu'on ne connaît pas, de l'enculé. Donc, euh, moi, je les invite vraiment à y aller tout le temps vers les autres et ne pas les attendre qu'ils viennent vers nous parce qu'ils viendront, ils viendront euh, presque jamais. Je ne vais pas dire jamais, mais c'est rare. Great, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, uh, for sharing your perspectives. And I wanted to check. Uh, so um, thanks so much, Andrea, also for sharing in the chat again for, for all participants, what uh, communities uh, they, and localities uh, Hamlin and Maher are based in, in France. So if you're interested in looking up uh, some further information about these communities, uh, please feel free to do so. And Andrea, I saw that you raised your hand. So uh, please, please jump in. 
Yes, sorry, just to clarify that. Um, so Hamlin was the first, her family and her were the first family uh, that arrived in her village, which is a very small village. It has 700 inhabitants. And it was in 2017 that the, the prefecture, sous-prefecture, which is the representation of the state, asked the, the mayor if they wanted to host uh, resettled families. And basically the mayor thought it was a good idea to keep the school alive, to, to have new, new students. And, and nothing was organized. So they, they had to like quickly coordinate and find the local network of volunteers and and this was done by by one of the elected um, representatives and this is how suddenly they could create some language courses uh, also um, on the side after school um, so everyone contributed and um, this is why they, they could really quickly learn French and um, also Hamlin's parents were also able to learn French really quickly and this facilitated their insertion in the in the labor market while Maher is in a city which is a, li a little bit bigger and um, although they were supported in for all administration procedures um, Maher told us that uh, him and his siblings were able to learn lang the language really easily through school, but there weren't this, there wasn't this network that could support um, his parents, for example. So after a few years, he realized that that his parents are still struggling with the language, which doesn't doesn't help them in uh, to be autonomous. So I think this is also important to point out that when we talk about integration, we always we always come to the same thing like language acquisition, but it's actually very important because in these rural areas, when there is no other infrastructure, the school has a, an important role. And if there are no volunteers to help, um, especially adults, or there are no gathering places for, for um, adults, then it becomes really a, a challenge that affects everything else. Um, get to get a job, to be able to 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 get a driving license, to be able to you know. So it's it's really important, and I think that the, these two cases are similar, but at the same time, um, they have some differences. Thanks, Andrea. I think you mentioned a very important point, which is also to to make the most of the infrastructure of services and of social encounters that is already there in smaller communities, rather than uh, you know, just thinking about highly specialized additional services where maybe these are these are hard to implement and then also to 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 keep in place in the longer term. Um, Daniel, I saw that you raised your hand. Um, uh, would you like to react I, to these points? I just wanted to say that um, what Andrea just said is something that uh, we have also encountered in much of our research that um, rural areas have their resources, but they need to be leveraged. So you need a a network of local actors that builds such a welcoming infrastructure as um, has been um, explained by Hamlin, um, where people also volunteers um, do something, but first they have to know about um, a family coming and a family having certain needs, such as a language course. And I think that's something that rural areas can build upon, that they are able to, to generate um, volunteer services, um, even if, if let's say professionalized uh, formal services are absent but um, still you need a network that is able to build upon um, this resource thanks a lot daniel and indeed i would uh, invite participants also to look into the uh, land to house at zukunft uh, program i'm not sure whether uh, daniel you had a chance to post a link on the chat or in the article sharing section of the platform but i'm sure that people will be very interesting interested and talking about the uh, articles that i scrolled through 
um, uh, this morning that uh, many people already shared in the platform. I also saw a very interesting one uh, that David shared on the experiences that they had uh, and sort of like the case for mid-sized cities and smaller communities to, uh, to um, you know, be open to, to migration and building ecosystems of inclusion. Uh, David, I'm looking at you because we had a question uh, to you from the platform, from, from one of our participants. They were interested to know whether you were referring to, uh, you know, refugees or migrants that are given a choice where uh, they establish themselves, such as, you know, like through uh, skilled immigration pathways. And I would link this maybe to uh, a question that we, that we only touched on, because of course we are also talking about different groups, but great if you could briefly comment on this. When we talk about, uh, you know, this, this discourse of uh, economic uh, contribution and revitalization, for instance, does this narrative risk placing, um, you know, excessive pressure on the shoulders of newcomers that might be vulnerable? And do we have to be careful managing expectations of communities, um, you know, given that sometimes perhaps, uh, you know, uh, these individuals will decide um, uh, freely to, to relocate somewhere else where they, uh, they think they can find better opportunities. And this may lead perhaps to, to disappointment also in, in communities opening up uh, and uh, willing to, yeah, to be hospitable and welcoming. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me just say, first of all, about 80% of our immigration are economic migrants, only about 20%, in some cases even lower, are refugees. So, and even then, most of the refugees tend to locate in the larger cities. So when I say larger cities, I'm talking about places of 100,000. So I'm not talking about mega metropolises, but there are uh, examples of, uh, of refugees settling in smaller communities. And I think you know, in, in the case of refugees, it shouldn't be so much an economic angle. As I said in my introductory remarks, we have a moral obligation and there may be more um, uh, uh, work in terms of, so most economic migrants, for example, come with language uh, with either English or French uh, here in Canada already uh, able to speak it at a working level whereas most of the refugees do not. So we have additional uh, challenges to work with the refugee community uh, and make sure they get the language skills, they get the work skills they need, they get the support they need uh, to uh, ultimately join the workforce and, and you know, have a productive career and, uh, for themselves. So I think the, you know, as I said, it necessitates a more effort with refugees, but important effort. Uh, you know, as I said, we, we do have a moral obligation there, and, and so we need to do that. Now, refugees and economic migrants in Canada are very mobile. They can be. They, once they have their permanent residency, once they're settled, they can move anywhere where they want. And to your last point, you know, it does, can lead to some hurt feelings and some issues if, if, if a refugee family in a small community uh, picks up and leaves after they've been supported for a while. But I do think that, you know, we do need to understand that reality. But still, I think there are many, many cases in Canada, and I'm sure in Europe as well, where, where uh, refugees and economic migrants have stayed and settled. As I said before, those fundamental issues, economic opportunity have to be there. Uh, and then social integration, as I, I said in my introductory remarks, you know, if for whatever reason, uh, a lot of the migrants moving here uh, are of a religious persuasion and churches, whether it's mosques or synagogues or, 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 or churches, 
have been very important in that settlement. And as les, was mentioned earlier, schools too, schools are fundamental, uh, but they need the financial support from government to make sure, uh, you know, they can properly support the part pour qu'elle puisse aider ces populations. Thank you so much, David, for these closing Merci points. David and uh, I'd like to thank you all. Thanks so much to the speakers for, for participating. Daniel, Kamlin, Maher, David, Maher, and Andrea. Thanks for your contribution. Thanks Merci to the participants for, for sharing your thoughts and questions. Um, sorry if we didn't manage to address all of them, but I would Désolé really invite you to uh, link up to connect with, uh, with the speakers and to vous continue the conversation via, via the platform and also to check out the resources that they shared or the programs and initiatives that they mentioned, there's certainly more to come. Thanks so much. And Merci I just have beaucoup. a couple of final announcements before closing the session. As for the previous finale, sessions, yeah, we encourage you to continue the conversations on the platform, on Tuba. And uh, tomorrow we will also post there the recordings from the breakout Tuba. sessions. So feel free to uh, keep exploring the resources there also beyond the end of the conference. And we will now have a short break of uh, about 12 minutes. And we will see you at 5 p.m. Brussels time. So again, in 12 minutes for the closing panel, which will look at innovation within government, innovation for inclusion within government, uh, rethinking and modernizing integration policy. Thank you so much uh, for joining, and uh, yeah, have a lovely continuation of the conference and of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.